It is good to be with you. It's a little bit more than 10 minutes that we shared in Louisiana, but it was quick. Really looking forward to spending this weekend with you. And uh, it's just, it's such a treat to to be at an event like this. Uh, Jenny and I bring greetings from the saints at Trinity Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. And uh, we really look forward to this time with you this weekend. Um, We did spend that time together in Monroe. Uh, which was brief, but I can tell you that Jenny and I really, really have appreciated our friendship with Dwayne and Sarah over the years. I guess we've, I guess that goes back, what, about 15 years, probably about when we first met, probably almost exactly 15 years ago, and, uh, and it's just, it's just uh, a great uh, blessing to be here and to see your church and to see how God is working here and working through uh, Dwayne's ministry to you. Um, I always appreciated, I mean, everything Dwayne said about me, I would say is mutual. I very much appreciated uh, Dwayne's ministry, Dwayne's insights into scripture, uh, his sense of humor. Uh, I even am not too upset by the fact that he's a Cardinals fan. Um, I grew up in Chicago, so we, you know, we celebrate about once every 109 years uh, when we have a good, good baseball season. And Dwayne already got on to me for bringing it up, <laughs> as if the Cardinals haven't had their share of success through the years. Uh, we're going to spend a lot of time this weekend in Luke 15, uh, studying this text and then applying this text. This is probably the most famous of Jesus' parables. It's certainly one of the most uh, well-known passages Uh, in all Scripture, one of the most celebrated passages in all of Scripture. And yet, as with so many passages in the Bible that are familiar, uh, I think we often misuse it uh, or we fail to use it fully the way that we should in our lives and in the church. Uh, The parable of the prodigal son uh, is certainly a, uh, a wonderful summary of the gospel But it's more than just a summary of the gospel. It's really a story that ought to become our own stories, uh, our own personal stories. The, the story of our church should match the story of, uh, of the parable of the prodigal son. Uh, it's a story that should shape our lives and shape our church culture, and I think that's often where we have the breakdown. We see how this story points us uh, to the grace of God, and that's really what I'm going to focus on tonight. Uh, but then tomorrow, we're really going to get into how this story should shape the way we live, how it should shape our relationships and the, the ministry and the mission of the church, because I think that's really where we tend to have uh, the breakdown. Um, I've been fascinated with this story for many, many years, and the more that I uh, have studied this uh, particular parable, uh, the more I have come to the conclusion that this parable in Luke 15 not only explains what's happening in Luke's gospel, it not only explains what's happening in redemptive history through the ministry of Jesus, but it really explains just about everything that happens in the life of the church. Uh, it explains just about everything that happens in, uh, in the church community, everything that happens in the ministry of the church and in the community of the congregation. It, it explains, I think, some, why uh, sometimes our ministry succeeds and why sometimes it doesn't, uh, why sometimes uh, we fail uh, to do what we're seeking to do in, in spreading the gospel and welcoming people into the church. I think the story really captures the dynamics that take place in our relationships, why sometimes our relationships rub. Uh, and why sometimes they, uh, they don't, why they're able to remain intact. And the reason for that, the reason why I think it has this explanatory power that can really unfold for us what is happening in our lives, in our relationships, in the church community, is because really all of us can find ourselves somewhere in this story. 
Indeed, we can probably find ourselves in multiple places in this story, depending on the period of our life or depending on the particular relationship we're talking about. Uh, we are somewhere in this story. Uh, my guess is that your church, like my church, uh, has a lot of room to grow into the full meaning and significance and application of this parable. And so uh, my goal this weekend is certainly for you to never read Luke 15 in the same way, uh, but more than that, for Luke 15 to really shape uh, your own Christian life and the ethos of your church in new ways. I realized that I didn't give you, um, or maybe I didn't give to Dwayne titles for my talk, so I'm going to give them to you, um, and then that'll help kind of orient you where we're going to go this week. And this first talk tonight, um, I'm calling the Gospel versus Common Sense, or When God Goes Crazy. Okay. Um, then tomorrow morning, first talk is going to be a tale of two brothers, the prodigal son and the Presbyterian son, and you'll see why I call him the Presbyterian son. Uh, and then the final talk is going to be called uh, Beating the Older Brother Syndrome. Uh, so basically how we can uh, avoid the sins and errors of the older brother. So uh, with that in view, let's read Luke 15. Let me read this passage for us. <clears throat> then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he spoke this parable to them, saying, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine just persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Then he said, A certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare? And I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants." And he arose and came to his father. But he was, when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. 
Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you, and I never transgressed your commandment at any time. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us again. Father, we do thank you for this time together, and we pray that uh, here tonight and throughout this weekend that you would speak to us through this passage of Scripture, through your word. Uh, that you would shape us and mold us, that you would uh, chisel us more and more into the image of Christ, uh, that you would make uh, this church, Christ Church here in Cary, more and more into the kind of community that, uh, that you're calling them to be, the kind of community that their city needs them to be. Uh, and so, Father, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> the parable of the prodigal son is a real problem for us. As much as we delight in this story, uh, it's really a problem for us. Uh, Charles Dickens called it the greatest story ever told. Indeed, it is a story that has changed forever the way we tell stories. I think you can even see the influence of this story on some of Dickens' own work. But it's not a neat and tidy story. Uh, it's really a disturbing story. There's something deeply troubling about it, something very unsettling. It is so contrary to common sense. It seems so impractical and unrealistic. Indeed, it even seems dangerous, like you could read this story and get the wrong idea. Uh, it's not a balanced story. Um, you may not know this, but there is a similar story in the Buddhist scriptures, uh, in the Lotus Sutra. Does anybody know about this? Anybody ever read this account of the story? I've seen it in uh, different versions. Uh, probably the, the similarities between this story in Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal son, and the story in the Lotus Sutra, uh, probably the similarities are coincidental. Uh, if there was any borrowing that took place, it's the Lotus Sutra that borrowed from Jesus and from the Gospel of Luke because uh, it comes uh, probably just over 100 years uh, after Luke's Gospel was written, uh, the Lotus Sutra version. But there are very interesting parallels as well as very interesting differences. Uh, let me tell you about the Lotus Sutra version of this story. In the Lotus Sutra version, the uh, Buddhist version of the prodigal son, you have a teenage son, a teenage boy, uh, who takes his father's money, takes some portion of his father's money, and runs away. And he begins to live a riotous and wild and extravagant life. And then the money runs out, because the money always runs out. And so he's reduced to uh, the life of a beggar. He is reduced to begging for a living. Uh, meanwhile, his father has continued on in his business. He has increased in prosperity despite what his son had taken. And one day when his father is out with a caravan of his wagons, he sees his son. He knows unmistakably this is his boy, his boy who is lost, who has run away. He sees his boy on the side of the road 
begging. And so the father secretly sends some of his messengers out to get his son and to bring his son. Basically, they arrest his son and bring his son back. His son doesn't know what's going on, uh, but he's brought before the father. And, uh, and, and the father in the Lotus Sutra version of the story actually does what the prodigal son suggests uh, in Jesus' version of the story. He takes the son in, but he makes the son a slave. He brings his son back in, but he makes his son uh, a slave. He's basically the, the, the low man uh, in, the, in the family business, kind of like the janitor. And uh, he keeps his identity secret. He keeps his son disguised. So no one knows this. Uh, no one realizes that the son has uh, come back. Well, over the years, the son, still keeping his identity secret, uh, earns his way up the company ladder, so to speak, uh, by doing what he's told, by uh, being obedient. Uh, finally, the father reaches old age, and he gets sick, and he is ready to die. But before he passes away, he gathers together the rest of the family and his workers to himself, and he reads aloud his will, revealing that his lost son had indeed returned home many years before, and that his lost son would now be the one to inherit the family estate. The son had worked his way up from the bottom to the top. That's the Lotus Sutra version. Now, that's a story that makes sense, doesn't it? That is a sensible, practical version of the same story we have in Luke's Gospel, right? That is a common sense version of the prodigal son. The father doesn't just receive his son back and restore him right away as if nothing had happened. No, the son has to prove himself. He doesn't throw the son a party right away. He makes the son work for it. That is a practical story. That's the kind of thing that a real-life dad would do, right? A real-life, common-sense, practically-minded dad. The father in the Lotus Sutra version of the story is sensible. In fact, that's really one of the most striking things about all three of the stories Jesus tells in Luke 15 is how unrealistic they are, how insensible they are. In Luke 15, Jesus tells three parables, or really he tells one parable in three different ways. At the very beginning of the chapter, it says he told them a parable. So it's one parable told in three different ways. But what's interesting is each one of these stories, each version of the parable, runs totally counter to common sense. Each version of the story, if you really think about it, is just utterly shocking. Consider, in the parable of the lost sheep, there are a hundred sheep. And one gets lost. And Jesus says, which of you shepherds would not leave the 99 sheep and go looking for the one? Well, think about that for just a minute. If you were really a shepherd, would you do that? <laughs> no, no shepherd, no shepherd in his right mind would actually do that. It's crazy. That's not the way you shepherd sheep. That's not the way you would normally look after sheep. You don't risk the 99 for the sake of the one. In fact, it's interesting, in 1 Samuel 17, when David is sent by his father Jesse to go check on his brothers uh, on the battlefield, uh, when he gets there, one of his brothers asks, who'd you leave the sheep with? Because no shepherd is ever going to leave his sheep unattended. You don't leave the sheep alone. You just don't do it. It's insensible. It's, it's, it's unreasonable. What about the parable of the lost coin? 
well, there the woman has ten coins and she loses one. And certainly it makes sense for her to light a lamp and to sweep the house and to look for that missing coin. But then what does she do when she finds it? She invites all her friends and neighbors over to celebrate. I know when you find some change down in the sofa, <laughs> this is what you do, right? You throw a big party and invite the whole neighborhood, right? I mean, that's just obvious, right? No. She invites all her friends and neighbors over to celebrate. Who would throw a party to celebrate the recovery of a lost coin? It's crazy. To invite over her friends and neighbors and throw a party would cost more than the coin was worth. It would cost many coins to throw a party like this. So how could this be smart? How could this be sensible? It's not. It doesn't make sense. It's crazy. No woman would do it. In real life, that kind of thing just doesn't happen. Of course, the story of the prodigal son is just as shocking. What dad would welcome back his son this way? with a party like this. Think about it. The son had wished his father dead when he asked for the inheritance early. The son then took all the money and spent it on wild living. And then he returns home after having hit rock bottom, still unclean from having been in the presence of pigs, and the father does not even let him finish his pre-rehearsed repentance speech. The son has rehearsed in his mind what he's going to say and, and asked to be taken back as a slave. He doesn't even get to finish his speech before the father has welcomed him with a hero's welcome, as if he never did anything wrong, indeed as if he were some kind of hero. The father runs out to meet him. That's not the kind of thing that a Middle Eastern ancient patriarch would do. You don't lift up your skirt and run uh, if you're a Middle Eastern patriarch. You just don't do it. It's embarrassing and shameful. And you certainly don't run out to meet your son who had strayed away and embarrassed your family name by wasting all of your money in this kind of way. Why does Jesus tell this story? Jesus tells this story because he wants us to see what he is like. He wants us to see what God is like. He wants us to see what he is doing in his ministry, what God is doing in his ministry. He wants us to see just how astonishing and shocking and scandalous his grace really is. He wants us to see the freeness and the graciousness of grace. He wants us to see common sense cannot figure out his gospel. God is the seeking shepherd. God is the searching woman. God is the welcoming father. In real life, nobody behaves this way, but God does. Jesus tells this story so we will see what the grace of God really looks like. He wants us to see who God is and what God is like and how God deals with sinners. And of course, he also wants us to see how prodigal all of us are, how lost we are, how sinful we are, but what it means for God to receive us as his sons. But here's the thing, and I think this also helps us get at what's happening in this story. There's not just one prodigal son in the parable. In fact, I think to call the parable the prodigal son, the parable of the prodigal son is really to obscure what it's all about. There's not just one prodigal son in the story. There are two prodigal sons in the story. Not just one son who goes astray. Both sons go astray. They just do so in different ways. Sometimes if, if we read over this story and we kind of gloss over it quickly, it's easy to think, oh, well, the father had one good son and one bad son. 
There's one good boy and one bad boy in the, in the story. You know, there's the one rebellious son and the one righteous son. The older son who was the good boy and the younger son who was the bad boy. In reality, both sons are bad and both sons are alienated from their father. The difference is the younger son's alienation is obvious. He wants his father dead, after all. That's really what it means when he asks for his inheritance early. It's as if he, as if he said, drop dead, dad. I want what's coming to me. What you have, I want. I want my share of it now. I wish you were dead so I could get my inheritance right now. You know, sons in that day and in that culture would sometimes ask for uh, their inheritance or at least a portion of their inheritance early so they could get a head start on building their own estate. But that's not what this son is doing. Uh, this son takes what he's been given and he liquidates it all so he can go out and waste it, partying. He is a sinner. He is an open and obvious and notorious sinner. It's obvious why he's alienated from his father. He wastes all his father's money on wicked living. He is given these great gifts and he abuses these gifts that have been given to him. But the older brother, while appearing to be a son, while appearing to be a good little boy, is actually a slave. He is also alienated from his father. It's more subtle. It's more hidden, but it's just as much of a problem. Look at his speech. You know, if you look at his speech carefully, you see this. In verse 29, he says, I have been slaving for you all these years. He says, I never transgressed your commandment, yet you never gave me a goat to make merry with my friends. Now, I kind of doubt he had any friends. Okay. A guy like this probably didn't have many friends. Uh, but you, you see how he is accusing his father in, in, in what he says. He relates to his father not as a beloved son, but as a slave. He doesn't have the freedom and love and assurance that comes with a father-son relationship. Instead, he has the fear and anxiety of a master-servant relationship. He claims to be righteous. He claims to have never transgressed his father's command. He claims to have no need of repentance. And indeed, he accuses his father of shortchanging him. His father has not given him enough. His father has not paid him a sufficient wage for all the work he's done. And so he is alienated from his father. Again, there's not one prodigal son here. There are two. There are two lost sons. But by the time we come to the end of the story, one son has been restored and one remains alienated. At the end of the story, one of the sons has been restored to sonship, but it's not the son we might have expected. Isn't it ironic? The older son lived at home, but lived like a slave in his father's house. The younger son left home, and he hopes at best to be taken in as a slave, but he gets treated as a son. See, by the time you come to the end of the story, everything is topsy-turvy. Everything is upside down. All of our conventional expectations have been, uh, have been reversed. The wild and reckless son is restored to fellowship with his father, and the father doesn't shame him. The father doesn't punish him. The father doesn't say, I told you so. Instead, he says, I love you so. And the prim and proper son, the son who obeyed all the rules, the son who claims to be righteous, at the end of the story, is still a slave. He is still alienated. He's standing outside the party in anger. The younger son was willing to be made a slave, but he gets the full status of a son. 
The older son looked like a son, but he lived like a slave. He lived at home, but in his heart, he's a slave. He, he lives at home, but his heart's not at home. His heart is far from the father. His heart has journeyed to a far country. The younger son has wasted everything partying. He comes home and the father says, let's have one more party. Let's have a forgiveness party, a repentance party, a restoration party, a party for the prodigal. The older son never got a party. He could have, that's what I think is uh, implied, he could have because the father says, everything I have is yours. But he has refused to receive and enjoy the love and the grace and the gifts of his father. Instead of enjoying the father's love and gifts, he slaves away. And then he accuses his father of parsimony and stinginess. But here's our problem with the story. This is what you really need to see if you stop and think about it. The problem we have with the way Jesus tells the story is that the older brother seems to have a pretty good point, doesn't he? Can't you at least sympathize with him, with his plight? Isn't there something unfair and unsettling about this? After all, the partying the younger brother did, you know, after all the partying that the younger brother did, did he really deserve one more party? <laughs> After the prodigal had been welcomed in and been given the ring and, and the sandals and a feast in his honor, the older brother protests. Think about his protest. He says, I've slaved away obediently all these years, and then when this son of yours comes home, after all these years of wild living, you don't punish him, you throw him a party. Now, doesn't the older brother have a point in that? Put yourself in his shoes for just a minute. Isn't the older brother, in some way, the voice of common sense in this story? Don't you have at least some sympathy for him? Can't you feel sorry for him uh, in some way? Doesn't the older brother seem eminently reasonable in his plea? Uh, have any of you seen the, the play uh, Wicked? Uh, I have not seen it myself, okay? So, but, so I've, I've, I'm just relying here on what my girls have told me about it. Uh, you know, Wicked is, is basically the story of Oz. It's, it's, it's a, it connects with the Wizard of Oz. Uh, but it tells the story of Oz from the witch's perspective. You know, the witch's side of the story rarely gets told. Right? Oz tells the story from the witch's perspective. Maybe somebody should rewrite this parable from the older brother's perspective. What would happen if you were to rewrite this story from the perspective of the older brother? If you were in the older brother's shoes, might not you have the same kind of objection to your father welcoming the wild prodigal brother back home? How would you like it if a sibling wasted his share of the family inheritance and then came home and had a party thrown in his honor with all the expenses now coming out of your share of the inheritance, because that's all that's left, so really that's your ring and your robe and your sandals being passed on to your rebellious little brother, you would probably be thinking, where's the rebuke? Where's the punishment? Shouldn't he at least have to work his way back into dad's good favor? Uh, I'm sure that you know, if your family's anything like mine, uh, you know, if, if you're a parent, 
uh, dealing with your kids or if you're uh, a child in a family with siblings, uh, you know how siblings can be so sensitive to matters of justice and fairness and equity in the family. Like, you know what happens if you've, let's just say hypothetically in your family, you've got a rule about when kids are allowed to get a cell phone. And let's just say hypothetically speaking that, you know, you did that for the first kid and the second kid and then the third kid, you let them get their cell phone a month earlier than you did the previous two. Okay, what do you have? You have a lot of objections, a lot of protests, okay? Siblings have a very deep sense of fairness, very finely calibrated tools for detecting any injustice on the part of their parents. Okay, we see this in our families all the time. So come back to my question, can't you at least feel a little bit sorry for the older brother? Can't you sympathize with him? Don't you think he has a point? I think he's got a pretty good point. What is Jesus doing? Jesus is showing us what grace looks like, and grace always offends those who think they don't need it. It always offends those who minimize their need for it or who think they need it less than others around them need it. Grace offends because it seems to rip our notions of fairness to shreds. How does the father welcome the son back, the prodigal son, with the ring and with the robe and with full and free forgiveness? But where's the justice in that? How is that fair to the older brother? This is the point I'm getting at, and this is the point I think the story makes. The gospel is completely contrary to common sense. When we tell the gospel story, it seems like God has gone crazy, like God has just lost it. The gospel runs contrary to common sense, to our view of what is reasonable, and that's why it offends. That's why it is so scandalous. Indeed, in 1 Corinthians 1, this is why Paul says the gospel message is foolishness to the world. Uh, one thing I find very interesting is that, uh, you know, I've read a lot of parenting books through the years, been to lots of parenting conferences, probably we all have. Okay? In all those books I've read and in, in, in all the conferences I've been to, I can't ever remember anybody teaching parents how to parent from the parable of the prodigal son. Might there be a reason for that? <laughs> it just doesn't seem to factor into the way we parent our children at all. Parents don't go to Luke 15 for child-rearing tips. Parents don't go to Luke 15 for child-rearing tips the same way young people don't go to Hosea for tips on Christian courtship and dating. Okay, think about what happens in the book of Hosea. Hosea the prophet is told by God to go and marry a whore, the town prostitute which, of course, seems like an absolutely crazy thing to do. Who would go marry a whore? Who would go propose to a prostitute? Nobody in their right mind is going to do that. But God says to Hosea, I want you to do this so the people will see what I am like. It's not like anything we would do in real life. But see, the point in Hosea and the point in Luke 15 is that God, the Father, is like Hosea. He's like the father in the parable of the prodigal son. The gospel is deeply opposed to common sense. It's unnatural. Indeed, every feature of the gospel seems crazy. God 
becoming man. How crazy is that? A king being born in a manger. A healer who gets wounded. A prince of life who dies on a cross. A savior who dies with sinners. See, we think we have God figured out. Shouldn't God come to us from above? But no, God chooses to come to us from below. Shouldn't God come to us clothed in glory? But no, he chooses to come to us dressed in humility. The gospel is crazy. The gospel is foolishness. The doctrine of salvation by grace or the doctrine of justification by faith, these are radically unreasonable doctrines. The world just doesn't work this way. Now, in telling you that the gospel is unreasonable, in telling you that the gospel is utterly contrary to common sense, I don't mean that everything the Bible has to say, that everything the Christian faith teaches on any subject is opposed to common sense or opposed to reason or insensible in this way. But it does mean at the very core, at the very heart, at the very center of our faith, we see a God who is totally different than we are and utterly opposed to our sense of what is common or what would be sensible or what would be reasonable. And what this means is we have to come to grips with what is so deeply radical about the gospel message. If we go try to make the gospel more sensible and less foolish, we end up losing what makes the gospel so unique. We turn the parable of the prodigal son into something you can find in the Lotus Sutra, in the Buddhist scriptures. We lose what makes the gospel the gospel. We have to see God's ways are not our ways. The contrast between grace and common sense is so, so striking. Again, think it through. Just, just I, want, I want to run through this again so that you can really get the full depth of this. When the prodigal son comes to his senses, he tries to come up with a sensible way to work his way back into his father's house as a slave. The father does the insensible thing of greeting him as a son. I mean, the moment the father catches a glimpse of the lost son down the road, he runs out to meet him, to embrace him, and he's immediately... Apart from any works, he is immediately restored and forgiven and blessed and rewarded. Clearly, the father's favor could not be earned. It is freely given. The son wanted to be reasonable. The father offered him a crazy deal. Again, free and full and immediate restoration. No punishment, no penance, no probationary period. Likewise, the older brother is controlled by common sense, even more so. Indeed, to him, his dad has been utterly unfair and unreasonable. He wants a sensible father. He wants a reasonable father who operates according to common sense standards of fairness. He wants a father who understands fairness in his way. He wants his dad to be efficient and to not waste any more resources. He wants his father to do the sensible thing and the fair thing. But again, forgiveness and grace are never sensible. And so the older brother stands in judgment not only of his brother, but also of his father. 
He is angry at the end of the story because his father is eating with the wrong kinds of people. His father has welcomed and forgiven a sinner freely. And this is offensive. Now tomorrow we will start to ask how this story should challenge the way we do church, so to speak. Uh, What should uh, the church's culture look like? What should church life feel like? What should the ethos of the church be in light of this story? What would it mean for this story to shape the way we do ministry in the church? What would it mean for this story to shape our relationships inside the church and even outside the church? What would that look like? Or to put it another way, if our common sense tells us to be like the older brother, how can we become more like the father? That's the challenge. Let me just give you a few hints here tonight, and then we'll begin to uh, pick up on these threads and uh, and pull them through tomorrow. It has to start with seeing who God is, with seeing what God is like. We have to see how God is like the Father in this story, a God of amazing grace, a God who seeks and searches for the lost, a God of radical welcome to sinners, a God who loves the lost, a God who throws a party for prodigals, a God who doesn't shame those who come to him drenched in their sin. You know why the father in this story has a feast when he brings the prodigal home? Uh, Why he makes merry? You really see this if you go back earlier to verses 7 and verse 10 in the previous tellings of the parable. Jesus really sums it up. He says in verse 7, he says, When a sinner repents, that is when a lost sinner turns to God, when he turns from the pigsty to face home, Jesus says, there is joy in heaven. There's joy in heaven when a sinner turns from the pigsty towards home. He says there is joy. In verse 10, he says, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God. See, the joy on earth in the parable of the prodigal son, matches the joy in heaven Jesus talks about earlier in the chapter. What makes God happy? Not righteous people who need no repentance, but sinners who repent. What makes God happy is prodigals who come home. Do you see God this way? This is so fundamental. Do you see God this way? As a God who hugs and kisses sinners who are still messy and dirty and unclean from living in the pigsty. Do you see God this way? Do you see God as a God who runs out to meet us even when we're still a long way off? A God who interrupts all of our repentance speeches to lavish us with his love and with his gifts. A God who spares no expense to rescue us and receive us into his home. A God who will even embarrass himself the way this father does when he runs out to to, to greet his son. A God who's willing to embarrass himself in order to reclaim us. A God who runs to us even when we are staggering and limping. A God who bears all the cost and shame of our sins, who absorbs all our wrongdoing and pays all our debts. A God who continues to be gracious even to those who abuse his grace. A God who keeps giving gifts even to those who trash his gifts. A God who serves us and sacrifices for us so we can take our place at his table. Do you see God this way? A God who pours himself out for his people who are so often ungrateful and who are always undeserving. 
Do you see God this way? A God who parties with the angels in heaven when even one sinner turns from his sin. A God who is wild and reckless and promiscuous with his mercy. A God who is crazy and lavish and extravagant with his love. A God who will do the foolish thing. A God who's willing to, to play the part of the fool, to act the fool in order to give us his wisdom. A God who is willing to become weak. A God who became a weakling in order to give us his strength. This story is supposed to unsettle us. And when we hear this story and we start to think about how it might work out in our lives, we can't immediately, you know, we immediately start to think, yeah, but, and we want to bring in all kinds of qualifiers and, and, and all kinds of conditions. We want to make it a little more reasonable. This story confounds us. It does not compute. It seems dangerous. It gives us a radically different view of who God is and what he's up to in the world. Again, I don't know of any father who would do this in real life. And I'm not sure I would advise any father to do exactly this in real life. I don't know. But I do know that God is like this father in the parable. And I know that is a scandal. It is the scandal of grace. But this kind of grace, this kind of gospel is music in a sinner's ear. It is a glory-giving, joy-giving, life-giving grace. We've heard that, um, you know, we have a, I think we have a hard time uh, believing in a God like this. I think we have a hard time believing God could really be like this father. Uh, and I think we have an even harder time believing that God might want us to be this way as well. Jesus told this story so we would see what God is really like. How God's love meets us where we are, not where we should have been. How God's love doesn't come with any strings attached. There's no fine print in the contract, so to speak. There's no hidden catch. There's no gotcha moment that's coming out later. This is a God who is so crazy in love with us. He not only races after us to bring us home, he will ultimately die for us to rescue us and to save us. This crazy thing is what we Christians call the gospel, the crazy story of God's love. A love that calls us to the feast and that calls us into the family. But it's a love, too, that God now wants us to show to others. And I will tell you, as we, you know, we're going to begin talking about this more uh, tomorrow, but just think about this. If showing this kind of love makes God look weak and foolish, you can be assured that showing this kind of love will make you look weak and foolish at times as well. If showing this kind of love made God look weak and foolish and vulnerable, showing this kind of love to others is going to make you look weak and foolish and vulnerable at times as well. But this is the love, this, this, this crazy, radical, uncommon love. This is the kind of love God calls us to. And that's what we're going to look at tomorrow. If we want to be world changers, you know, we're called to change the world, and a lot of times that doesn't look like what we think it's going to look like. But we are called to change the world. We're called to disciple the nations. We're called to carry this message of the gospel out to the nations in word and deed and to change the world with it. If we're going to be world changers, if we're going to be world-changing kingdom agents, we have to learn to show a radical and otherworldly kind of love, an, uns an insensible love, an, uh, an unreasonable love, a crazy love. Sensible Christians 
rarely change history. God calls us to something different. God calls us to be like himself. God calls us to be like the Father. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for this amazing love that you have shown to us in Christ Jesus, your Son. Uh, A love that we truly can't comprehend in its depth and breadth and width. Uh, Father, a love that, uh, quite frankly, is hard for us to understand. uh, And yet a love that we know we're called to show to others around us. Uh, And Father, we often don't know what it should look like. Uh, but I pray that you would help us in this. I pray that you would give us the strength to love this way. You, uh, through your son, uh, your son told us to be perfect like the Father in heaven is perfect. Perfect there, especially seen in the mercy and compassion that we show to everyone. Help us to become perfect in love, perfect in mercy and compassion and grace, even as you, our Father in heaven, are perfect. Uh, this is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen.